Hey friends, Nels here. Welcome to the Journey Church Podcast. Today we're in a message series called Don't Feed the Wildlife. We all have beasts inside of us that we try to keep tamed and controlled, like lust, anger, pride, resentment, envy, and greed. Today we're looking at how to keep those beasts from running wild and ultimately how to kill them. Let's tune in. We work very hard at keeping it quiet, thinking we have it tamed, controlled, hoping no one will find out. We pretend we are normal, if anyone is really normal. But sometimes we let it out to run wild, heedless to the damage it is creating. We cover it up, make excuses for it, but we still feed it. What is your beast? Is it lust? Anger? Pride? Resentment? Envy? Greed? Are you ready to kill it? I heard someone out there and say, yes. Uh, this is uh, our fourth week in our six-week series called Don't Feed the Wildlife. And my name is Brandon Edwards. I'm one of the pastors here at Journey. Last week, Derry talked about lust, and it was awesome. If you didn't see it, check it out. You can go to don'tfeedthewildlife.com. I can't believe we got that website. It's awesome. <laughs> don'tfeedthewildlife.com. Um, I wanted to st- uh, this week I'm going to start, a- I'm going to talk about anger and bitterness and how to kill it. And I'm going to start off by giving up a little confession about myself. I'm going to confess to you something. I am a little bit competitive. My friends who know me know that that is very true. My wife definitely knows that that's very true. Even my children know that that's true. Um, anybody else uh, is pretty competitive, like you like sports, or these are all my unhealthy friends, that's good. You could say that I have an unhealthy obsession with winning. In fact, I'm competitive to a level that many of my friends don't even want to play sports with me. They're, they're, and I don't blame them. I mean, what's going to happen? And I've always been that way. I've lost friendships over it. I've lost friendships over sports. I tried to blame it, or I, I tried to tame it down later in life, especially now that I have kids so that I don't mess them up. But you can imagine that this unhealthy obsession with winning, it, can create, it has the potential to create some problems in some relationships and things like my marriage. Now, my wife Stephanie is beautiful and sweet and incredibly patient with our kids, way more patient than I am. But she, like me, is also very competitive. She's, the only, she's one of the only people who can really go toe-to-toe with me in competitiveness, and we like that. Early in our marriage, my wife and I would be playing card games and things like Scrabble, because that's what competitive people do. We play games. And uh, she's really good at Scrabble. She has a really big vocabulary, and she knows all the like, special Scrabble words that are real words, but nobody uses them in real life, but they're worth a lot of points. I mean, she is really good at Scrabble, she has beaten me like thousands of times. In our first year of marriage, we were up at Flathead Lake, and I had, we'd, I'd lost like five times that day, but I was getting closer, and finally, I tied her. You can tie and scrabble, and, and she was, and I was like, see, honey, isn't that nice? We tied, and she was like, it's like kissing your sister. And I thought, I thought, I may not be the most competitive person in this marriage. But really what I thought is, oh, it's on. And... Um, 
Suffice it to say, she no longer is the undefeated Scrabble champion in our family. But I never learned my lesson in this competitiveness it, it creeps into other areas of our relationships, one, of our relationship, our marriage. One time, we bought a table and we were going to bring it into our house uh, through the garage, the door between the garage and the house. And I knew it wasn't going to fit. I knew, and as we were carrying it, you know, sideways, I was like, honey, it's not going to fit. I, I know it's not going to fit. And she was like, it's totally going to fit. It's totally going to fit. And this is our first year of marriage. And, and I'm like, all right. So we start going through and it scratches the door. And I'm like, I told you. And she's like, finish it. And I said, I told you it wasn't going to fit. I told you it wasn't going to fit. And, 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 you know, it got into what I would call an elevated discussion. That's what we had. And this is, this is going to be our first one. Um, and who do you think I thought was at fault for that elevated discussion? Who did I blame? Her. It was her fault for the elevated discussion. And who do you think she thought fault was. Oh, it was my fault. She thought it was my fault. And now fast forward a little bit and I can tell you it was my fault. It was my fault. And we, it was because of how I brought it up. But what we figured out from that moment is we need to have a new dial, uh, uh, some new words. And what, what I would say is in that case, like if I know this is not going to work, honey, then I say red flag. And the only time I'm going to say red flag is if I know this, like I know. And so she, uh, she knows that, and we learned that, but I had to apologize. And, and it, it, there's a lot of times where we get into blaming one another. Do you do that? Do you blame other people? Oh, you do. Trust me, I do it all the time, and I'm good at it. I think that I'm pretty good at it, maybe a little competitive at it. But um, I was looking for some inspiration to talk about blame today, and so I started looking up legal terms and things that lawyers do because I think lawyers are like the competitive athletes of blaming. I mean, if you're a lawyer, thank you because I need your help a lot of the time. But, and it's a really honorable profession, but you guys are really good at blaming. You know, this is a sign that had this message that I found online. It was a billboard. It said this, just because you did it doesn't mean you're guilty. And I thought, Yes, I need to hire that guy. <laughs> I also looked up a, a billboard, and it was by a woman, and a female lawyer, and she said, have you ever argued with a woman? And I thought, that's not the point I'm trying to make today, so I'm not going to put that up. <clears throat> but what I wanted to do was, was do like a group blaming session here for a second, okay? We can all agree that it is not our fault that we blame other people. It is this person's fault. It is their fault, Adam and Eve. It's all their fault. The only reason we blame is because of them. And they started blaming anyway. I mean, remember what Adam said when God came down and he said, Adam, did you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And Adam said, yes, I'm sorry, Lord. I did, I confess to you that I did eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and I'm a sinner and I'm sorry. No, Adam did not say that. He said, that woman you gave me, she made me do it. So it wasn't just, it was her fault, and God, you gave her to me, so it was your fault too. It was your fault and her fault. It's not my fault. <laughs> and then Eve turned around and blamed the snake. And that's why women are a little more afraid of snakes than men are. <laughs> that's, that's not true. I don't think that's really true, but maybe that's all you needed to learn today. I don't know. We... 
But we blame others a lot. We're, we blame them a lot and we're really good at it. But we don't blame everything on everybody else. I mean, sometimes we, we're like, oh, I'm sorry, honey, I, opened the re- I left the refrigerator door open. That was me. Or uh, it was me, I left the oven on and I know that's so dangerous and that's terrible. But most of the time, it's, it's, it's other people's fault and we don't take responsibility for it. And a lot of the time, if you're honest, if you assess yourself, you think, I have a valid reason for why I did what I did. Almost every time. It's almost always somebody else's fault. It's almost never our fault. And that's why we run around like crazy suing each other. It's nuts. In the the United States, there's a guy who had prison time for kicking somebody in the face. Okay? Kicked a guy's face in. And then he decided he was going to sue Nike because Nike didn't put a warning label on the guy's shoe that said this shoe could be used as a deadly weapon. That is a real lawsuit. Another lawsuit, there's a Starbucks lawsuit right now that is a guy who says that Starbucks put too much ice in his iced coffee. I mean, that's a legit lawsuit right there. But we run around just blaming everybody all the time. And maybe you don't have a class action lawsuit against somebody, but all of us walk around carrying this ridiculous cases against one another, these ridiculous cases. And what does it look like for us? What does that look like in us is anger and bitterness. And we, we could have subtitled this series, Growing in Our Identity in God, because that's a huge part in killing sin. We can kill sin because Jesus died and and destroyed sin. He put sin to death. So we know that we can kill it. And growing in our identity in God is a big part of that. But it does not sound as cool as don't kill the wildlife. We also could have called it growing in the fruit of the spirit from Galatians 5. Where, which are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we could have called it that growing in the fruit of the spirit. But that's pretty lame. So we called it don't feed the wildlife. Because it's more about killing the sin. But really it's also about growing in the fruit of the spirit. Now. But the thing that I'm going to talk about today and where I'm going to land at the end of the day, I'm going to give it to you up front. The way to kill the beast of sinful anger is to really forgive, really forgive. And that's where we're going to land today. And it's through forgiveness more than anything else that reflects the act of Jesus on the cross. It's central to who God is and God's love. It's what we do. It's what Jesus did on the cross. It's what the early Christians did. It's what we're called to. And when we really, 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 truly learn how to forgive, then it's like taking fertilizer and pouring it on this joy and the fruit of the Spirit that grows up inside of us. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, somebody who knows how to forgive is somebody who knows how to deal with anger. That's what it's about. Biblically, it's this ability to deal with with anger. And how do we do that? How do we forgive? It's this essential sign of Christianity. If we're a Christian, we're supposed to be like the early Christians. The early Christians, they were being oppressed and thrown to the lion's lion's den. And as the lions were tearing out their throats, they were praying for their oppressors and singing hymns and songs. How's that for a faith check? Do you feel that kind of faith today? Do you have that kind of faith and relationship with God? As the lions came and were, th- were tearing their throats out, the people in the stands were like, hmm, that's different. 
That's not like the other slaves that are getting torn up. What's going on with those Christians that they forgive like this? It actually goes further back to the person who says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they're doing. Jesus on the cross, he showed patience and kindness, the fruit of the Spirit, forgiving the people that were torturing him. And that's the example the Christians are following. That's our example. And anger is a scary thing. Almost all murders start with anger. Almost all wars start with anger. All riots start with anger. Anger is tremendous. It's a tremendously dangerous emotion. It was in his sin that Cain killed Abel. And in 1 John, he's talking about this. 1 John 3, he says, we should love one another. Don't be like Cain killing Abel. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. Hate equals murder. And you know no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And it's not just brothers and sisters in Christ. We know that our neighbor is everyone. It's everyone in the world, especially our enemies. John is saying that there's one of two ways to go. First, the first way, the one he's recommending, is love and forgiveness, which leads to life in Christ. But staying, the other way is staying in anger and hate, letting bitterness grow within you, and that's the way of death. Jesus and John are both saying, murdering is like anger. Anger is like murder. If you turn with me to Ephesians 4, if you have your Bible or on your phone, the, this is the passage that it has this nice, complete example of what to do with anger. It's Ephesians 4, 26 through 32. Paul says, he's writing to the Ephesians, by the way, in Ephesus. That's why it's called Ephesians, really. The, the Bible terms, the way we describe the Bible is um, pretty clear. Ephesus, Ephesians, don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. Now, in that passage, you can see three things. First, anger itself is actually not a sin. It's just an emotion. It's very important to understand that it's not a sin. If you don't understand this, you'll never be able to deal with anger in a healthy way. Verse 26 says, in your anger, do not sin. Paul says, don't sin, so don't be angry. He's not saying that. He's not saying don't sin, don't be angry. He's saying in your anger, don't sin. When you're angry, don't sin. Anger is like the nuclear energy of the heart. It's this very strong emotion. And like nu nuclear energy, it's dangerous. But it's also really, really helpful if it's dealt with properly. If you dispose of the waste properly, you can harness it and do an amazing amount of good. The reason we know anger is not sinful isn't just because of what Paul said. It's because we see God, both God and Jesus, using anger, that they were angry. 
And because Jesus was angry and we know he's perfect and, and without sin, we know that God was angry and he was perfect without sin. Then we realize that anger is not in itself a sin, but it is this energy that's released to defend something or destroy something. If you want to understand a particular anger at a given moment, you have to ask yourself and maybe God, what am I defending and what do I want to destroy? Why am I defending this? It's, some people describe it, I heard this week, it's like clothes you put on and you're constantly wearing almost like a suit of armor, but a bad suit of armor because you're protecting something inside. Maybe it's pain that you're protecting and you lash out in anger. By the way, it's not easy to find a lot of good examples of anger in the Bible. Jesus has a few. In Mark 3, this is a good example. He gets angry at the Pharisees because he's trying to heal a guy on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees are like, no, you can't do that. You can't heal on the Sabbath. That is against the law, the, the Jewish law. And Jesus is really upset. He's furious. He gets angry. And what he's getting angry about is that God's law is being twisted about the Sabbath. His law is being misused and the integrity of the law is at stake. And so Jesus gets angry. And then what does he do? Is he channels his anger and he heals that man. He uses his anger for good. It's hard to do that for us, but that is the example of, in Christ that we see in the example that God gives us. Now, what's really cool about what Jesus did is he's used letting mercy for this man and anger and he's, he's using them both at the same time. And the great example that we have of God is what God invented in mercy and anger, which is the cross. He had to deal with our sin. God hates sin. He's constantly angry at sin. And so he, didn't, he also didn't want to have to destroy us in, in, our, in his anger for our sin. And so he invented the cross and so that we, he could pour out his anger on the cross and then we would have a relationship with him. He wanted to do it in a way that didn't destroy sinners. So how do we deal with anger and sin and channel that anger in this careful way so that it doesn't destroy us? It doesn't, it doesn't destroy anything that's good, but it destroys only maybe evil or destroys sin. How do we do that? Well, first we have to look a little bit more at anger and recognize that even though it doesn't have to be symbol, sinful, the second point is anger is usually sinful. In verse 29, Paul says, don't use foul or abusive language. The Greek there literally means to stink or putrid, foul, decay, like a dead mouse that's been in the corner for a couple of days, it stinks. And that's the kind of language he's talking about coming out of your mouths. Putrid, rancid, acidic anger. That's what it's saying. So, and, and then usually what anger does, you look at verse 31, he says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Usually what anger does when it's used in our life, is it, we use it to defend our ego or our pride. We release this anger to destroy people and that's the normal way that anger operates. Generally speaking, we're defending our ego or our idolatrous idols, our idolatrous goals, things we feel like we have to have and that's when we get angry. 
So anger is sinful when it's defending the wrong thing. Now, the next time you get angry, you want to ask yourself, what am I defending? It's usually your pride or your reputation or your face. We talk about losing face, pride, ego. We think it's too important to me. This thing is too important to me. The only possible way for you to deal with your anger is to deflate yourself and to say, is this really that important? Is this really the end-all, be-all? What could be more important than pleasing God? Is this really the thing that I should be focusing my life on? When that happens, you're able to deal with your anger when you deflate yourself. Anger is usually sinful, and when we release it to destroy people, those who threaten our little gods, our ego, or our idolatrous goals in life. What are some idolatrous goals? People's idols, they're usually pretty simple. Success in business, success in parenting, competitiveness, having a certain status, or just getting to do what I want. I want this, that house, that fishing trip, that hunting trip, that vacation. I want to be seen as a good parent or a good mother, or a great father, or have successful children. Is that a bad thing? No, it's not a bad thing. But it can become an idol. Do you get angry about it? The biggest is just getting what we want. I see that all the time. That's what road rage is about. Somebody cuts you off. If these little gods are threatened, we get angry. And anger is just a clue. It's a symptom of what's really going on inside of us, putting something above God. Now, here's the problem with that. The problem is, it's not really clear, one way or the other, whether your anger is from something good or something bad. It's usually mixed, which is a bummer. So point three is, in a sense, our motives are always mixed and impure which is a problem, so we have to figure out what to do with that, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that. What you have to do is you strengthen the good reasons, you strengthen the good motives, the holy motives like Christ's example, and then you refine and comb out and deal with the bad ones. Here's my suggestion. You deal with the anger to to grow like Christ in order to have, this is my example, Is this getting you towards growing and growing in the fruits of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Is that the end goal? A lot of the time it's not when we're angry. So how do we do this? I have four steps on your notes page. The first one is, first of all, you have to admit it. A lot of people, this one kills me and it's kind of a pet peeve of mine. Um, Makes me angry. Uh, Is when people say, I'm frustrated. And I'm like, are you angry? No, I'm frustrated. It's the same. Frustration and anger is the same thing. It is the same. You might as well just say angry, and actually that might actually help you admit that you have something you have to deal with. Admitting it simply means recognizing the fact that anger tends to hide itself. I have some friends who are potato farmers, and um, I use this example thinking that they would love it, but they didn't really like it this morning because it basically is saying that anger is the root Uh, of bitterness. So uh, Hebrews 12 says, don't let the root of bitterness spring up and defile you. And 
When I think of the root of bitterness, I think of something that is underground, that has a root, and it can grow to be really large. Have you seen some of the potatoes that grow? And that is the root of bitterness that can spring up and defile you. I think it's a great example that can remind us of not being bitter and what bitterness can do to us. It can defile you. The Bible says that root of bitterness springs up and destroys you. It's not very subtle. One pastor tells a story about a man he met who was a prisoner of war in World War II. And he lives in California now, but he still hates all Asians. So he is still being oppressed and under and has this root of bitterness that's grown and he has not forgiven. I don't know how many times I have to tell people, when you stay bitter at somebody, you lose. You actually lose. If you're really mad and you stay mad at someone and stay bitter at somebody, the only person, the only way that that person who you're so angry with can still control you, can still hurt you, is if you don't forgive them. If you stay angry. I don't watch Oprah, but I heard this story that Oprah, she... um, she was across the street from someone who had uh, abused her. And, and she was so angry, and he was just having a great day. And she realized he still had power over her and that she had to forgive. And that was a, a good example that stuck with me on what forgive, how important forgiveness, anger, and bitterness tied together and how we are slaves to it if we don't forgive or I can, there's this other guy who, he doesn't, he doesn't go to Journey, he didn't go to Journey, but his, one of his kids was at one of our awesome base camp events during the year, and somebody from our church was talking to him after it was over and finding out where he lived, and when they found out where he lived, they very politely said, hey, I have friends that live in that area, and if your kids would like to come to base camp, you know, they seem like they're having a lot of fun, we could, we could pick them up. And the dad was like, no, my kids are not going to church because... My dad made me go to church every Sunday and I hated it. So my children will not go to church. Look at that. There's a man who is still being controlled by what his father did. Something his kids might love, this thing, but he's like, nope, not gonna happen. Second, you have to understand it. That means you ask yourself, what am I defending? Or maybe, where is my pain? There are two examples I was thinking of this week of anger and bitterness and pain. And one of them is it's a beer. It's like a beer that gets poured into a glass and there's the head is anger and underneath is bitterness and pain. And that's really true for a lot of people that drink a lot. It's, it's a great analogy. The head, the froth is your anger. But the real thing is the bitterness and pain. Another one is, it's like an iceberg, and the tip you see is the anger, but everything underneath is bitterness and pain and hurt from the past or something, some insecurity or, that you're protecting and trying to destroy. By the way, it's really hard to stop yourself when you're angry. For example, when I get angry at my kids, I'm almost always saying, I'm angry. I'm always saying this to myself. I'm angry because you didn't do what I told you you're supposed to do. And what I'm doing there is I'm defending my righteousness, which is my rightness. 
I needed to be right. And when I'm pretty mean, when I'm saying some maybe harsh things, my eyes are popping out of my head and I feel regret later, it's usually because I'm defending my schedule for the day. Like, we're gonna be late to this thing and who cares, but I'm mad. Why am I defending my schedule? It's because I want things to go this way because I wanna be the kind of person whose life goes this way. I wanna be on time, every time. Don't get in the way, kids. I'm gonna take you out. The third is channel it. That's what God does. This is a great example of Jesus. He uses his anger and energy towards something that is healthy and holy. It's pretty amazing. But one helpful way to say this, um, if you look at what Paul's talking about is you don't want to blow up. You don't want to get angry. And you also don't want to stuff it. You don't want to clam up. So don't blow up and don't clam up. In verse 31, Paul says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Don't let the sun go down on you while you're still angry. And then in verse 29, he says, don't use foul or abusive language. So he's saying, and then, so that's the don't blow up. Don't use foul or abusive language. Don't let the sun go down where you're still angry. And then he says, don't clam up. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Blowing up means you release your anger and it destroys people. It could be your kids. It could be your best friends. Clamming up means you keep it all inside and you grow this root of bitterness, this giant potato, but it's bad. It's the red kind or something. Both, both of those are wrong. Don't let the sun go down on your anger means don't stuff it. Don't keep it in. You have to deal with it. You have to attack the problem, not the person. A lot of the time, the problem might be you. Take your anger and let it, and let it help you attack the problem. That's what we're told in verse 29. And then the, the last one is that we forgive. That's the last thing, the last thing we're going to talk about. But in, he says, instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgive one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Paul comes and says, the cross and only the cross can change you. He points to the cross at the end of that. Another area, in Galatians 6, right after the fruit of the Spirit, he says, in the cross of Christ, I glory. And that glory means weight. What do I give weight to in my life? What, what am I giving the greatest weight to in my life? But if, because if you take your identity from what you're good at, your possessions, your intelligence, your morality, your religiousness, There'll be nothing but hostility in your life because you'll be defending those things and not God. You're on this roller coaster ride because the thing you give the most weight to in your life is creating hostility with others and between you and God, making you bitter and angry. But if you glory in the cross of Christ, if you, re- if you give weight to what Jesus has done in your life and that relationship with God, then you can grow in the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do you want that? 
You cannot stay bitter at somebody. And at the same time, remember that you're a sinner that was saved by grace alone through faith in Christ. You can't, they don't go together. You're gonna stay on this side and stay bitter. One of the greatest stories of this is the Hatfields and McCoys. Have you heard of them? You've you've probably heard stories like this. The Hatfields and McCoys are two families in Kentucky who for generations, somebody had killed somebody at some point. They don't even remember when. And they just kept going back and forth and fighting and infighting. And you know what happened after a long time, generations and generations of this? One Hatfield and one McCoy became Christian. And they made up. Nobody got even. They forgave. In their lives, the cross had more weight than this bloody record and what they'd done to each other. It no longer drove their lives. Nothing drove their lives except the cross. Do you want to deal with anger? You have to do all those little things I just told you about. You have to admit it. You have to understand it. You can channel it and you have to forgive. And, and you're constantly holding that up against the cross of Christ. As soon as you feel anger, where's this coming from? Think about the cross. It probably, if you're able to do this, it probably means people will be just as amazed at your life as they were at those early Christians who were going and being thrown to the lion's den and having their throats torn out just before, and just before that, they were singing hymns and praying out loud forgiveness over their oppressors and their accusers. Admit it, understand it, channel it, forgive it, forgive it. But here is the big, the big but of the day. Forgiveness isn't enough. I see this all the time. It's probably pet peeve number two for me this week is um, a lot of the time people forgive, but there's another step. You also have to lay down the right for revenge. And you may not think you're doing this. I see a lot of people who say, yep, I've forgiven them, but they're not living like they're forgiven them. They're, if they see them, the way they're living their life, it's not having laid down the right of revenge. They're not reflecting Jesus on the cross who was praying for his oppressors, praying for the people that were torturing him. Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. He wasn't thinking, they're not living that way. That's not forgive. You have to do that to truly forgive. I had a friend back in Alaska who I found out had been really, really heavily, I had a lot of friends this way, but this one friend in particular was heavily emotionally and sexually abused by her uh, boyfriend of many years. And she just, this is true for I know many women even here, but she, she, she couldn't get away from him. She'd broken up with him, gotten back together many times. And she finally did get away from him. But he was awful. But everybody liked him. He was one of those great guys that like in a party or hanging out, you'd want to go hunting with that guy, you know. But I can tell you that my friends and I, we knew what he was really like to her. And I wanted to kill him for real. Uh, It took me a lot of years to realize that it wasn't healthy, that I was being a hypocrite. I needed needed to want, to actually want what was best for my friends 
ex-boyfriend. To hope and pray that God would transform him. Just like I ask God to continue to transform me and everyone here. One man said, hating people is like burning down your own house to get rid of a rat. You may have forgiven them. You may have made that move, but you haven't laid down the right to revenge. It may have been 20 years since they did it, but you still want to take them out. And time doesn't heal that stuff. It turns into bitterness and it grows up into a root. And you know people like that. You may feel that way. Or maybe you just hope they fail. You just, yeah, I hope they kind of have a bad life. Or that life hurts them or they get what they deserve. You definitely wouldn't want God to redeem them. And that's, that doesn't even seem fair. Anger passes, but the bitterness doesn't. It remains. And the root of bitterness springs up and it will defile you. It's not a question. It's, it's why John talks about it. So how do you kill anger, anger and bitterness? You forgive. And, you need to, and then you need to confess to someone right away that you've done that. So spiritually and emotionally, that's why confession is part of the deal. You can't just do it in your heart and then go on living. It's, it's got to be a little bit more public than that. It can be like one or two friends, but that's, what, that's part of the deal. You confess your sins and then you're saved. That's why it's so important around here when we make a decision, cross the line of faith, not just to raise your hand, but to tell somebody. When you forgive, when you decide to lay down revenge, to lay down that weapon, you might be carrying that weapon in case you see that person. I know people that do that for real. Bitterness is like a heavy weight. It's this heavy yoke. So we have a picture of oxen. And we always say this example, they have this yoke and so that their work animals are pulling the plow. And I think it's heavy. And Jesus says that my yoke is easy my burden is light. And how can he say that? Life is hard. He's saying it because when you forgive and you confess and you give it to God and then you glory in the cross of Christ, give it weight, that all of that is gone. You release that right for revenge. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Old Testament way is eye for an eye. That didn't work out too well. And Jesus comes and says, you heard it say eye for an eye, but I tell you, turn the other cheek. It's the core part of Jesus' message. It's how he can say, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You admit it, you own it, you understand it, you channel it, and then you forgive. You really forgive like Christ did on the cross. Christ forgave you and forgave his oppressors. Maybe you asked somebody this week, now, it's got to be somebody that you know is going to tell you. It can't be like a friend that's afraid to tell you the truth. But you ask somebody this week, am I angry at anyone? Am I bitter towards somebody? Do you know anyone that I might be angry at? Your spouse might not be able to tell you because they might be afraid to tell you. But hopefully you have a friend that would do that. Hey, I need to get real for a moment. 
Can you tell me, am I, do I seem bitter or angry? You may already know the answer to that question because you know who you're angry at and you don't need to ask, but maybe you need to spend some time with God and deal with it. Then the other thing we can do is we can pray this prayer. I hope everyone has praised this prayer this week, which is God, help me forgive others as you've forgiven me. If we just prayed that prayer, it would change our lives. It would change my life. It would change all of our lives. I think it would change our families and our businesses, where we work, where we go. If we could all do that on a regular, a regular basis, pray that prayer. God, for, help me forgive others as you've forgiven me. Help me forgive others as you've forgiven me. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for this morning, for the reminder that you forgave us for everything that we've done, that you're not a God who blames us, even though you could, and help us not to blame others in our relationships. For those of us sitting in the room thinking to ourselves, I know somebody who needs to hear this message. Open our eyes. Open our eyes to see that we're blaming others right now, that that seed of bitterness is there. God, help us to evaluate ourselves so we can recognize when we're doing this, so we can move forward in relationships and we can become the people you made us to be. We love you and we thank you this morning. Now, if there's anyone out there who has not made that decision, has not made that decision to give weight to the glory to God and this cross, to give that weight, which means to make God number one in our lives, to make him the number one thing. And if you haven't made God your personal savior, the one that is transforming you, we can do that right now. You pray this with me. God, pray that you would come into my life for the first time right now, that you would take my sin and I, I recognize and believe that you died on the cross for me and for the world. And I pray that you would come into my life. I want you to be number one. I want to forgive like you forgave. Help me forgive others of you forgiven me. God, I thank you for each person here today. I also want to ask everyone if you are, if you have someone in mind that you are angry at, that you someone you need to forgive, that you may have forgiven them, but you haven't laid down the right to revenge, I'm gonna give you a chance to raise your hand also right now. Go ahead right now and raise your hand. If you have not laid down the right to revenge on someone, you need to forgive someone. That's the first step in confession, amen. And, and there'll be people afterwards that, that have yellow lanyards on the side and back of the auditorium and you can talk to them if you want to or commit to telling someone who that is and praying to God for them. God, we thank you for everyone here today. Thank you for their honesty and their openness. God, you are here and you work in our lives. We thank you that you are the one that took that penalty for us, for our sin and we wanna live in that life and grow in the fruit of the spirit that you've called us to and be an example for others. Be example to our families and our worlds at work and at home. And we thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. 
We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.